0: First chapter of John and the third chapter of John, chapters 1 and 3, Marian Anderson, the great black singer, um, perhaps, as some have said, the greatest voice in the 20th century, um, Someone said about Marian Anderson that she was simply great, and she was great simply. I like that. A reporter asked her one time uh, what was the greatest moment of her life. And she had many moments that she could choose from. She could have said it was the time when Toscanini said of her, that a voice like Marian Anderson's comes only once every 100 years. It could have been in 1957 when she became the first black ever to sing at the Metropolitan Opera. Or in 1956, when her biography came out, Oh, My Lord, What a Morning, hit the bookstands and became an instant bestseller. Or the times when she received medals and trophies, and keys to cities, or the time when she gave a private concert at the White House for the Roosevelt's and the Queen of England, or when she sang a 4th of July uh, concert at Lincoln Memorial before 750,000 people, but when she was asked, what is the greatest moment of your life, she answered, the day I was able to go to my mama and say, you don't have to take in washing anymore. Now why is it that some people become great and puffed up in their greatness like Nebuchadnezzar who was so proud of himself and he saw that it was of him that success had come and on the other hand there are these people who are so successful and yet they, they don't really feel like that they deserve it, that, that their success is largely the result of some gift for the, to them. And why is it that some people have this special gift of humility? What is the secret of humility or the secrets of humility? When you think of a humble man, you, you, you would think of John the Baptizer a humble man. And I want you to look with me in chapters one and three at the four phases of this man's life. And I want us to find tonight the secrets of humility, how some people can be simply great, and how some can be great simply. And I want to begin reading at verse six of chapter one. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came, with, came that he might bear witness of the light. These three verses are so full of meaning. He's only a man, see, John the baptizer, only a man. Now, the first five verses uh, deal with the God-man, this unusual man who has broken into history at at human level, and he's the God-man, totally unique and totally different. But John the baptizer is only a man, and he has no supernatural ability. You may not uh, realize it, but he never performed a miracle. And he never performed a sign which was the evidence of supernatural ability. Sometimes we pedestal individuals and we put these men on pedestals and and expect of them uh, things of which they are not capable. He was not a superman. He was just a man and his mission was that he was to bear witness of Jesus Christ. And everything he said about him, says John chapter 10, verse 41, everything he said about Jesus was true. So in order to be a witness, you have to tell the truth. And he told the truth about Jesus. And he came saying, I'm not the, the word, I'm a voice. And I am not the light, I've come to bear witness of it. So first secret of, for humility of humility is this a clear understanding of our, of one's mission or our mission and an acceptance of one's limitation. Humility is a clear understanding of why we're here and an acceptance of our limitation. Humility doesn't mean that we go through life um, putting ourselves down. Humility is just that there is no confusion regarding our direction. It's accepting our limitations. And it's understanding that a part of our uniqueness is not what we can do, but a part of our uniqueness is what we can't do. And humility is the acceptance of limitation and a clear understanding of why we are here, that we have a special place in life and I find that place, and I fit there within that structured, that, that place, and I accept my limitations. Now, I want you to look at verse 15. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace." Really, there are really three roles that John the baptizer fit into, and, and, and there are these subtle temptations that always come, in unique temptations that come with these roles. First, he was a spokesman, he was a leader, and he was an authority, that is, he was somebody that, some other, that other people went to for for counsel and for guidance and for advice. And within these three roles, there are always temptation. I want you to look at it first. As a spokesman, there is a temptation to highlight one's own importance. As a spokesman, there is a temptation to highlight one's own importance. Frequent references to our accomplishments and to our record and constant references to me and my and I. Do you see what's missing in verses 15 and 16? What is missing are the words me and my and I. There's a subtle temptation when you are a spokesman to highlight your own accomplishments. As a leader, there is a subtle temptation to exploit others' ignorance. Look at verses 19, follow as I read. And this is the witness of John when the Jews sent to to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? They're ignorant about who he is. And he confessed and did not deny, and he confessed, I am not the Christ. Look at verse 26. John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me the thong of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. There's a subtle temptation when you're a leader to magnify your own accomplishments. And then there is a subtle temptation that goes with authority, and that's the temptation to hide one's own humanity. Look at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Look at here, underline that. And I did not recognize him. And I did not recognize him, verse 33. I mean, here was the Messiah. And I'm came to i the one who came to announce His arrival. I didn't even know it when he, when he came. I didn't even recognize Him. That's a rather honest admission, wouldn't you agree? If you have your New Testament handy, I want you to turn to the book of Luke right quick. Just flip back to chapter 7 of Luke's Gospel. Luke 7, verse 18, following. And the disciples of John reported to him about all these things, and summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? What I'm trying to say is that that those who are in authority have a tendency to to hide their humanity, there's there's a tremendous amount of vulnerability and honest doubt and a willingness to admit, hey, I don't have all the answers. You find that hard to do is to admit you don't know everything. Do you find it rather difficult to admit your humanity that after all, you're you're human, just human? A.W. Tozer has a, marvelous little book called The Root of Righteousness. And in this book he said, you know, he has a chapter entitled Make Room for Mystery. I want to just read some of it. It's kind of long, so hang in here with me. Listen, he said, Many people belong to the class of Cicero who, quote, fear nothing so much as as to appear to be in doubt about anything. They proceed on the false assumption that everything in heaven and earth can be explained and, and than this, nothing could be more glaringly false. For better than the attempt to, to understand is the humility that admits its ignorance and waits quietly on God for His own light to appear in His own time. We will be better able to understand when we have accepted the humbling truth that there are many things in heaven and earth that we shall never be able to understand. It will be good for us to accept the universe and take our place in the mighty web of God's creation, so perfectly known to Him and so slightly known even to the wisest of men. To those who have degraded their conception of God to the level of their human understanding, it may appear frightening to admit that there are many things in the scriptures and more things about the Godhead that transcend the human intellect. But a few minutes on our knees looking into the face of Christ will teach us humility of virtue whose healing qualities have been known by God's elect from time out of mind. Listen, the pitiable attempt of churchmen to explain everything for the smiling unbeliever has had an effect exactly opposite of what was intended. It has reduced worship to the level of the intellect and introduced the rationalistic spirit into the wonders of religion. No one should be ashamed to admit that he does not know. And no Christian should fear the effect of such a confession in the realm of things spiritual. Indeed, the very power of the cross lies in the fact that it is the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of man. The day we manage to explain everything spiritual will be the day that we have for ourselves destroyed everything divine end of quote now what he's saying is this is that there is a subtle temptation in spiritual realms to to, to never admit that you don't know as you can't explain to hide your humanity And and humility is the ability to say, hey, I realize that I have my limitations. I have my place, but I have my limitations, and I've learned to accept them. Secondly, the second secret of humility is the ability to to handle subtle temptation. The most difficult is the public and its applause is to be able to handle the public and its applause. Now I want you to turn to chapter one of John, verse 35. Again the next day John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples, now notice these are two disciples of John, And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And they followed Jesus. Oswald Sanders has a book called Robust in the Faith. and In this book he has a chapter on John the Baptizer. He titles it, The Preacher Who Lost His Congregation. So that while this man was emphasizing the Messiah, he emptied his church. That happens sometimes. Sometimes when a person emphasizes the Messiah, he he empties the church, so that sooner or later, I think all of us have to come to grips with the fact that which is the most important, a full church or a glorified Lord? And sooner or later, all of us have to deal with the issue, which is most important, to glorify Christ or to have the applause of man? Vance Havner was preaching revival out in Amarillo, Texas, and started out on Sunday in the First Baptist Church, the thing was packed out. By Friday night, there wasn't enough people in there to put in the choir loft. And Carl Bates was a preacher then, and, and, and Carl Bates was absolutely embarrassed, humiliated, and he came up to Vance to Havner on Friday night, and he said, "I just I want to apologize for my people. He said, this is embarrassing to me. And Vance Havner said, I didn't come here to fill this church. I came here to empty it. And what John the baptizer was, was, was doing was this. He realized that when he pointed out Messiah, folks were going to leave him in droves. That's a pretty powerful thing to deal with. You know, sometimes it's pretty difficult to say goodbye to the approval of others when you stand to point out and to glorify the Lord. You know how difficult that is? I want you to just turn over to chapter three, verse 22. And after these things, Jesus and His disciples came into the land of Judea, and there He was spending time with them and baptizing. And John also was baptizing in Enon, near Salem, because there was much water there. They were coming and, and they were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown in prison. Now look, there, there's, some, there's an occasion here for jealousy. Because John the Baptist, John the Baptist had been, this was his turf, this was his territory. And all of a sudden Jesus comes and just baptizes there. There's some reason for jealousy. And as a matter of fact, there arose a discussion between the disciples of John and the disciples of Jesus. In verse 26, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you, were born, you, you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. How many of you could say this? John answered and said, A man can receive nothing of himself unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves bear bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. How many of you are able to do that? Second, secret of humility is to handle the temptation, the applause of the crowd. Third, Third secret is is the vision to see God's hand in others and applaud it. Look at verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this joy of mine has been made full." the vision to be able to see the hand of God in others and applaud. A few years ago I was uh, witnessing to a guy in town and I I spent a lot of time trying to win him to Christ. I mean, I worked on him and uh, took him out to lunch and did my best to uh, you know, breakthrough and just prayed for him all the time, witnessed, worked on him and, and one day I telephone rang, I answered the telephone he said, I, I you know, he said praise the Lord, he said, Gerald I accepted Christ a while ago I just, he said, I got saved this week and man, that made me so happy, you know and I just, I was rejoicing I was thinking, you know, I, I was getting ready I said, well, now, yeah, you know um, you need to come Sunday and and, and and walk the aisle and, and, and get baptized. He said, well, he said, he said, I plan to do that in, in, in Southside Baptist Church. He said, I, I know the preacher over there, and he's a friend of our family, you know, and he said, uh, I'm going to go Sunday, sure am. He said, I'm going to walk the aisle, and he said, I'm going to get baptized, but he said, I'm going <laughs> to do it somewhere else. You know. Let me tell you what, Sure was hard to rejoice about his salvation after that. In the list of seven deadly sins, envy is found. You've heard about the man to whom Zeus came and told Zeus told him he could have anything he wanted, providing he was willing for his neighbor to have twice as much. You know what he asked for? That he could go blind in one eye. You think about that a little bit. And we've all felt envy. It's all—it's you know—it just kind of lurks back in the back rooms of our our mind and heart. We all know the feeling, don't we? And it does a strange thing. Does envy? It's kind of like a paradox. It it makes us happy when others are sad, and it makes us sad when others are successful. And every person here tonight who is honest with himself and with God will admit. That he's, all, that he's felt that those little tinges of envy. You've looked on the halves of others and wish they didn't have it. And envy is most likely to appear in full bloom where we are competitors, you see, and where the room at the top is limited, where we are competitors either overtly or covertly. For example, if... If you said to a lawyer, you know, I believe Mr. X is the best lawyer in town, best surgeon in town. He's not going to have any problem with that. But if you said to him, to a lawyer, you know, I believe Mr. Y is the best lawyer in town. He's going to have a little problem with that. Because it's in the area where we are competitors, either overtly or covertly. And the room at the top is limited that we have this problem with envy. And so Saul burned with envy. When the people began to shout of David, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his th- ten thousands. Saul didn't have any problem as long as, as David was playing his harp. He wasn't jealous of, of David as a harpster. It's when David began to excel in Saul's own field of renown that made him burn with envy. And if you want to read the story sometime, when it... When it happened, he picked up a spear and hurled it at him, and when he missed it, he picked it up and hurled it at him again. Now, we don't throw spears at one another, but those feelings of envy lurk deep within all of us. If we can't succeed, we don't want anybody else to. And so Paul said, Rejoice with them that rejoice, and weep with them that weep. And regardless of what our face shows and what our voice says, most of us rejoice when others weep. And we weep when others rejoice. And humility is this ability to see God's hand in others and rejoice in that. It's the ability to see God blessing others and applaud that. It's the ability to recognize in others God's hand And be proud for them. Rare is that bird indeed. He doesn't stand often in this pulpit. I promise you that. Third, fourth secret is a constant commitment to the increase of Christ and the decrease of self. Humility is the constant commitment to the increase of Christ and to the decrease of self. So he says in verse 30, he must. It's a divine imperative there. It's the same word that Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's a divine imperative. He must increase. I don't suppose that there are very many of us tonight who would not like to see that happen. We'd like to see Jesus increase. Nobody likes to come to church just to come to church, I don't think. We'd like to see the Lord exalted here. And we'd like to see the Lord loved and exalted in this community. And that's the answer to the problems of the world, that He would, be, that he would in- increase. It's the next statement we have a problem with. But I must decrease. How many of you want to do that? And somehow there there might be a connection and there might be an irrevocable tie there that He will never increase until you decrease. And His increasing is directly in proportion to your decreasing. And I, I believe that's what is involved in this dying to self and and taking up a cross and following Christ that when you and I are willing to 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 give up self and the things that attend to the self life to the selfish life when we're willing to lay those aside then he begins to increase and so if you want to find a way to do that, you just pick up a hymn book and read songs by Isaac Watts. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. How is it that I allow Jesus Christ to increase in my life? By pouring over what He's done for me. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote so sacred head for sinners, used to be for such a worm, for sinners such as I? And I think that what what is necessary for most of us is that we just need to get back to the reality of, of focusing on Him and what He's done for us. And the more we focus on Him, the bigger He is to us. The more He increases and the more we decrease. Fourth secret, humility. is a constant commitment to the increase of Christ and the decrease of self. Let's pray together. Father, Help us to accept who we are, why we're here. Lord, help us to believe and to know that the greatest thing that could be said about any man is he was chosen to point the way and witness to Jesus Christ. And Father, in our pursuit to be somebody, help us to realize that the mission we have in this earth is to exalt and to honor and to glorify the Lord Jesus. For I pray in His name and for His sake. Anyone tonight who would like to step forward and identify themselves with Jesus Christ? Is anybody here who would like to come tonight, put the, place their life in the fellowship of this church? Is anybody here who would say, I'm willing in order for Jesus to be magnified in my life, to, to be exalted in my life, I'm willing to step back, to step aside. I want to lay this down. I want you to pray for me. That Jesus might be glorified and exalted in me. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.